Scripture reading for today is going to be found in Genesis, chapter 21. We're going to be starting at verse 22 and reading through the end of the chapter. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me in the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham approved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs apart from the flock. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called, the, and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Well, thanks, uh, Ethan and the worship team, for leading us today. Um, the theme that has emerged from many of the songs that we've sung today is the eternality of God. The eternality of God. And that matches the theme of our passage that we have hopefully open on our lap still. In Genesis chapter 1, we're looking at the latter section of it. And that theme is revealed in the divine name by which Abraham calls upon Yahweh. That name is El Olam. El Olam, although it might not make it into your translations, uh, the, the Hebrew really means something like God of the ages, or as it's likely translated in your copy of God's word, the eternal God. This is the God that we worship. And really, there's a lot of songs that we could have chosen today that speak to the eternality of God. A lot of these songs are structured around the contrast that there is between us who are bound by time and by all of the limitations and difficulties and and weaknesses that are associated with time um, and a contrast between that and God who stands outside of time who transcends time. That means that he is over and above it and is not subject to it. He is Lord over time, if you would want to put it that way. So we could have very easily sung songs like Be Unto Your Name. Do you remember how that one goes? It says, We are a moment, you are forever. Lord of the ages, that's El Olam, God before time. We are a vapor, you are eternal, love everlasting, reigning on high. Or we could have sung one of my personal favorites, 
Abide with me. Which goes in part like this. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Those lyrics really resonate with me because that's exactly what I see all around in everything. Change and decay. I see it when uh, a dear friend passes away. I see it when I look in the mirror and see white in my beard. I blame a lot of that on you guys. Or when I have to send another vehicle to the scrapyard. Uh, Change and decay are, are visible clearly when Dr. Seuss gets relegated to the dustbin of history. Uh, they're seen in all in the in the self-declared rise and the self-imposed fall of our governor. It's seen in all of the push notifications about the most mind-numbingly trivial things that are already irrelevant five minutes after you hear that little bell ring on your device. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. What we desperately need, bound as we are in time and in triviality, where there's nothing but change and decay and conflict and loss, is El Olam. Do you understand how insane it is for, for me to, or for you to look for meaning, to look for hope, to look for assurance, in this world or to look for joy in the people of this world or the pleasures of this world these are all passing away they're they're in the process of dying even as you're trying to enjoy them that's how the bible speaks about all of these things we're in hot pursuit of all of these things that are actually rotting Well, it's getting uh, very close, hopefully to the time when we can load up our kayaks and get them out on the water. I know that there's many of you who enjoy that kind of thing, as I do. Let me give you a loading tip, Rob. I don't know if you know this, but when you get your kayak up on uh, the roof of your car, don't just wrap the strap around the kayak and like hook it back into itself, Okay. Or hook it back, you know, maybe you think, oh, I can attach it to one of the paddles that's inside my kayak. No, I I trust you understand that you need to lash that baby down to something outside of itself. You you need to fasten it and ratchet it to, to something that is fixed, something that is immovable, like your roof, hopefully. Now, for our joy and for our peace and for our security and for our hope, we need to be anchored to something outside of this world, to something outside of ourselves, certainly, but even something outside of time, 
something fixed, something immovable, something unchangeable. Better yet, someone who is all of these things. And friends, I'm here to declare to you today that we have such an anchor for the soul. We have, we have such a hope and such a peace and such a joy. And we have that in El Olam, our eternal God. This was Abraham's God. And through this seemingly insignificant little passage, maybe, maybe you read through this or listened to Ethan read through this and you're like, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to 22. That's where it gets real good. But there's really not much here at the end of 21. I'm saying that even in this passage, we learn something, some very important things about our eternal God and the significance that lashing ourselves to him can make for our pilgrimage through this, through this world and through time. So there are three main things that I want us to notice about our God, our eternal God, from this passage. And you're not going to believe this. This is uncanny, but they all start with the same letter. Three Ps about our eternal God from this passage. First, I want to show you that our God is present. Second, that our God gives peace. And third, that our God is to be praised. Our God, first, is present. Now, I realize that our familiarity with these truths put us in danger of being far too humdrum about them. You know, some of us have been in the faith since childhood, and and to, to make these statements, to even bring this out a, as a point that our God is present, has, has the danger, the possibility that, that you might immediately want to just start to snooze. You can, you can actually use the, the sleep, and, and this is something that you're very well acquainted with after 10 or 20 or 30 years in the faith. But, but I don't want your familiarity to breed contempt here. It should be an astounding statement to understand that our God is present. We ought to be blown away by the fact that we have a God who is near, who draws near, who's present, especially when we consider certain things about him and certain things about us. Concerning him... We've already noted that God is eternal, that he stands outside of time. Moreover, the Bible says that he dwells in unapproachable light, which is the radiance of of his glory. And when we speak about divinity, we're speaking about that which is totally other and separate from us, which brings us to consider who we are. Who we are only adds to the the separation that exists by default between a creature like we are and our creator. We are sinners. We're not just creatures. We are sinful creatures whose sin has separated us even further from a holy God. Inapproachable light cannot have any fellowship with darkness. 
which is what we're characterized by. And in the context of Abraham's sin, if you want to consider his sin, um, it maybe is a little bit more comfortable as a starting point than considering our own. But think about Abraham. He was an idol worshiper from Ur. He, he, was, he was from a pagan land, and he and his family devoted themselves to, to worship of the moon, another created thing. I mean, it's, it's despicable. Furthermore, in the Hagar situation, we saw Abraham undertake very human, very fleshly solutions to his childlessness. And we've, we've seen Abraham give way to fear rather than faith as twice now, twice now, he's attempted to pass off his wife as his sister. And it's very nearly landed her in the arms of another man on two occasions, but for the grace of God. And one of those men, Abimelech, returns for a, a cameo appearance in our passage today. But the strong contrast between who we are and who El Olam is, by rights, should result in a complete estrangement. There, there ought to be an unbridgeable gap, and gaps too mild of a term. I'm talking about a chasm between that which is holy and eternal and who we are as sinful and passing away. And so it's very shocking, or at least it should be, when we read something like verse 1, if you look back at the beginning of this chapter, that the Lord visited Sarah. That should be shocking. Who's Sarah? Sarah is a, a bitter woman who also has given way to fear and even to mockery much more than she's given way to faith. But the Lord is present. Our God is present. And we read that he visited Sarah. Or uh, if you look backwards in chapter 18, we read that the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, and then he had a meal with him. It's amazing that the Lord would fellowship with a sinful creature like Abraham. And, and treating Abraham like a friend, he reveals his plans for Sodom. The Lord does. He's planning to destroy Sodom for its wickedness. And that's not, that's not astounding. That's standard. That, that's normal. That's what you would expect from God, that he destroys sinners. And yet here he is having lunch with a sinner and calling him friend and revealing his plans to him. That is mind-blowing. And then you just keep pushing it back further, and it's astounding that God would call this pagan idolater in Ur out of his idolatry and then make very great and very precious promises to him. Now perhaps you're thinking, aw, lucky, uh, Abraham got to experience the presence of God. Listen, Abraham didn't get to experience the half of it. In the fullness of time, the seed of Abraham, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, the Son of God, came into the world. He was, as Isaiah prophesied about him, the everlasting Father 
who was also called Emmanuel, which means God with us. His very name indicates this glorious truth that our God is a God who is present. And, and you understand what this means, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son, took on flesh and he dwelt among us. He submitted to time. He submitted to uh, the weakness that comes by being in the flesh. He submits uh, to the curse that is on the world. He ultimately submits to death, even death on a cross. You understand that Jesus Christ died bearing our sin on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God that's coming against us, and therefore, what does he do? He bridges this unbridgeable, otherwise unbridgeable chasm between sinful man and a holy God. Jesus Christ has made God near through his person and his work. And, and maybe now you're thinking, ah, lucky. I wish I could have been around when Jesus ministered on this earth. But Jesus himself would have said, nah, then you'd only experience the half of it. I'll tell you what's better. What's better is that I go to the Father and that we send you the Helper, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit of the Eternal God to be with you, to, to be present. And how present? Well, this this person, this divine person, is going to be in you. The Holy Spirit is one who dwells in a believer. And you talk about a God who is present. You don't get more present than inside. If you're a child of God, his presence is your personal reality. And you ought to rejoice in that. But there also is a public dimension as well. And by this I mean that God's presence in you and corporately in us together as the body of Christ, it ought to be noticed and noticeable by others. This is certainly the case with Abraham in verse 22. You can look with me there. Abimelech, this king of Gerar that we've introduced to before. We met him back in chapter 20. He's on the scene again, and he's this time is with Phicol, who's the commander of his army, and they've come to make a treaty with Abraham. In verse 22, they are very clear about their rationale, about their motivation. Abimelech says to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. In other words, the presence of God with Abraham is clearly perceptible to this pagan ruler. It was seen in the fruits of Abraham's life. All that Abraham did prospered. And there, there's only one explanation for this, and, and Abimelech was keen enough to, to understand it, and that is because of the presence of God. This is because God is with Abraham in everything. 
Abraham, you, you wonder what specifically are you thinking about Abimelech? And he's certainly thinking about things like, you know, when Abraham prayed for his family, and especially for his women of childbearing year, years who had all been barren for a time under the judgment of God, Abraham prayed for Abimelech and for his family, and things happened. Immediately, the wombs of all of those women were opened. And now, Abimelech is smart enough to understand what's happening with Abraham himself. Speaking of wombs being open, not Abraham's, but his wife. You know, Abraham's passing out cigars to, uh, to Abimelech and Phicol. The 100-year-old Abraham is handing out a cigar to celebrate the, the birth and the weaning of his own child. And Abimelech understands this for what it truly is. This is. There's no other explanation for this than that the Lord is present with Abraham. Added to all of this, you, don't, you just have to look out and see all of the multitude of, of flocks and herds in Abraham's possession. You, you just have to look at the, uh, the hundreds, maybe by this point thousands of people who are part of Abraham's household, his maidservants, his manservants. And it was big enough, this entourage, to make this king, Abimelech, and his military commander just a wee bit nervous. As Abimelech has observed Abraham now for a couple of chapters, he understands that the patriarch's person and all of his prosperity only has one explanation, and that is the presence of God. And so the question is, I suppose, if people are observing us, and let me, in on, let, me let you in on a little secret, they are, they're, they're watching you like a hawk, paying attention to our words. They're, they're watching our attitudes and our actions. If they're looking at our work and our family, all that we are and all that we have, will the conclusion be obvious to them that the only explanation for what they see in us is that our God is present? Our, our lives... Here's a related question. Are our lives attractive and compelling to outsiders? Abimelech, in verse 22, is, is like that, the kind of person that you see from time to time in the restaurant that says, I'll have what they're having. Whatever it is that they're having, they seem to be really enjoying that. It looks amazing. I'll have what that person's having. In Abraham, Abimelech is able to see the presence and the blessing of God, and he is essentially saying, I want a piece of that action. Do, do your lives kind of draw out that kind of response from people? Friends, that's how it's supposed to work. That's how it's supposed to work. Remember, this is the flip side to the promises that God has made to Abraham. He said way back Way back in the day, he said, I will bless you. And there's a second part of that. He says, and you be a blessing. I will bless you. You be a blessing. Uh, we understand through Abraham that we are intended 
It's by design that we would be a blessing to the nations. And this language comes out in our song of the month that we've been singing for the last couple of weeks. We sing, So with one voice we'll sing to the Lord, and with one heart we'll live out his word till the whole earth sees the Redeemer has come, for he dwells in the presence of his people. That's what our lives are supposed to be, a demonstration of the presence of Christ. And it ought to be noticeable and visible to the world so that they can, so that they can come to know the Savior and the Redeemer and the God who blesses so. I want to show you in the second place that our God gives peace. Our God gives peace. We've already kind of talked about how through the seed of Abraham, the Lord himself will provide the way whereby sinners such as we are can have peace with, with God. And that for sure is our greatest need. That's our most fundamental need is eternal peace with an eternal God. A God that we have sinned against. And God himself has made a way for us to enjoy that peace. It's through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord is also very gracious to give us peace on the human plane. You know, the, the, the fundamental problem is the vertical issue. Lack of peace between us and God. But that's solved in Christ. And so God is gracious to, to let that bleed out and have effects on the horizontal plane. And it's possible to have peace now with our fellow man because of the gospel. And this is what the Lord has been pleased to give to Abraham uh, for many, many years. Yes, there is that one time, you'll recall, when Abraham was at war and he demonstrated himself to be a very powerful military leader. But that was at his own initiative, and it was only for the purpose of rescuing his nephew Lot, fixing a a jam that Lot had gotten himself into. The rest of the time, if you're observing Abraham, you see him sojourning in lands that are not his, lands that are filled with other tribes and, and armies, And he's able to make his way and his huge entourage, all of his flocks, he's able to make his way through all of these lands in peace. He's living peaceably with these neighbors. And he's prospering because, and you know these neighbors are not like really wonderful peacemaking people themselves. We've read already in these chapters of of kings that have formed alliances with each other to totally wipe out other areas and totally take them over for their own gain. This is a bloodthirsty environment, and yet Abraham is able to make his way through all of this with peace and prosperity. And again, all of this is because of the presence of God. God has given him so much peace and security that even here, in the middle of a desert, and that's where he is, we learn that God has provided a well for Abraham. And ju- that's very similar to what we found in the first ha- at the end of the first half of this passage, in chapter 21. He, he's provided a well for Hagar and Ishmael, right in the middle of a desert. He lifts up their eyes and they can see it. And now 
um, hot on the heels of this, we read of another well that the Lord has provided for Abraham and all of his household. And that might not sound like a big deal to you, but you understand that in this time and in this place, water is life. You're nothing without it. You're, you're dead meat without it. And Abimelech wants a piece of this piece. He wants to strike a deal with Abraham, who he obviously regards, you can tell by their interaction that Abimelech is regarding Abraham, this private citizen, as the more superior party. And he, he's desirous that the two would enter into a, a peace treaty of sorts, into a non-aggression pact, where they and their people would deal kindly and faithfully with, with each other. The treaty was designed to secure peace well into the future, as you can see in verse 23, where Abimelech is, is thinking about his descendants that will come after him. He wants this peace to be a lasting peace. And Abraham agrees to this. In verse 24, he signs his name to the, the bottom line of this contract when he says, I swear, I swear it, I'll do it. And this actually is a perfect time to bring up an issue that has been bothering Abraham. It seems like there's been conflict over, over this well that I mentioned, this, this main well that's in the region. And it's, it's a scarce resource. It's, a, it's, in a rare, uh, it's a rare thing. And Abram, uh, we discover, ha was the one that dug the well. But some of Abimelech's people claimed that they owned the well and that they had the watering right. So you can imagine what was happening maybe daily as different um, shepherds came with their flocks and their herds to, to be watered. There would always be some sort of scrap, exchange of words at the very least. And it's very similar probably to the situation that we encountered back in chapter 12 between uh, the, the hired men of Lot and the hired men of Abraham. And they would often get into intense conflict over grazing lands and over water. And this is happening again between Abimelech's men and Abraham's well, um, men. So Abraham brings this up. This is a perfect time to bring it up. You want to deal faithfully with me. You want us to live in peace. Well, here's, an, here's a real-life issue where we're not experiencing peace right now. And so he brings this up, and Abimelech pleads ignorance. He says, I've never heard, heard of this before. This is the first time I'm hearing of it. I don't know if it is or not, but that's what he says, and you give him the benefit of the doubt. Nevertheless, it's Abraham that has the peaceful situation, the solution. He's got a peaceful solution to this problem. And you read about this in verses 27 to 30. Abraham takes a bunch of sheep and oxen and he gives them to Abimelech as a gift, as a sort of good faith gesture of his intention to keep this covenant that they are forging together. But he separates out seven ewe lambs. For what? For what? Well, Abimelech's wondering that too. So Abraham explains that by receiving these seven lambs as a gift, Abimelech would be declaring that he would be witnessing to or testifying 
publicly that the well in question was indeed Abraham's, that he had indeed dug it, that he owned it, and all of the rights to it. Abraham's saying, if you accept this gift of mine, that, that's what you'll be saying about this well. This is going to settle the well issue. And Abimelech knows how this works because he did a similar thing back in chapter 20. Do you remember at the end of that ordeal where, again, Abraham is passing off Sarah as his wife and, and it, it, be, it almost becomes a disaster? But at the end of that, Abimelech gives Abraham a thousand pieces of silver. And he explains why he's doing that. He says it's a sign... It's a, it's a public vindication. It'll be testimony to Sarah's innocence that she maintained her, her chastity throughout this whole mishap. So in the present situation, in the gift of these seven lambs, Abraham is essentially speaking Abimelech's peace language. He, he knows what these kinds of transactions do. They establish the fact that uh, Abraham really owns the well. And here's the point for us. Not only does our God give peace to us, and I trust that you've experienced his peace even in the midst of very, very difficult situations, but he requires that those of us who have come to know his peace would in turn be peacemakers that we would make peace with our fellow man. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. In other words, if we give ourselves to making peace with others, we will be chips off the old block, if I could say reverently. We will be acting just like our Father in Heaven, because our Father in Heaven is a peacemaker. And that's what he calls us to be. Similarly, the Apostle Paul commands us saying, if possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. And I love that command. It's not an easy command, but I love it because it's so realistic. It, 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 Paul is acknowledging that there are situations where this is going to be uh, very difficult and maybe even impossible but the impossibility of it should not lie with you but, but I want you to appreciate sometimes we get we focus on like the exception and we think yeah it's impossible I've tried and I can't we focus on the exception but I want you to I want you to focus on the rule the, I, I want you to first appreciate the possibility of what we've been called to here. And if you're anything like me, you're probably very pessimistic, pessimistic at this point about the, even the possibility of peace in our day and age. We, we live in a time, friends, I don't think I have to tell you this, that is marked by division, deep division, along almost every possible line, be it political or ideological or racial or gender or economical, you name it, we're, we're divided on it. Family members are ready to cut you off of their lives. They want nothing to do with you simply because you happen to have a different opinion. 
it's, it's a brutal, cutthroat culture. And yet, even here, even right now, even in 2021, in the midst of a cancel culture, in which we're trying to compete against each other for, for, for who's going to be more dismissive of other people, we must be a people of peace. How is this possible? How, you're wondering, how, how can we do this? Well, consider how Abraham could be a peacemaker. So strong is his faith in his eternal God and in this everlasting covenant that God has established with him. So confident is he in all of the promises that God has made to him, including the promise that his descendants will inherit this land, the, the land that, that we're even talking about. So confident, confident he is in these things that it's really just a small thing for him to deal peaceably with his neighbors in the meantime. Do you understand? Like, it, it, he, yeah, I can live peaceably with, with Abimelech and with Phicol. The eternal God is my God, and he's promised to give me all of this. He's promised to give me everything. It's a small thing for me to deal peaceably with Abimelech. Or come at, let's come at this the other way. What, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? We understand the answer that James would give, but, but let me give you kind of a different spin on it, if I, if I dare. It, isn't it this? Isn't this what causes fights and quarrels? It's that we're trying desperately to possess and then to hold on to, for dear life, temporary things in the here and now. For example, when I see a person who is a rabid defender of a particular political party, and it, trust me, it doesn't matter what side I'm, I'm talking about. I see this on both sides. Just rabid, vicious, whole, defending your political party at all costs. People who are ready to denounce and dismiss their opponents. What exactly am I seeing when I see that? I see someone who is completely invested in this life. They have 70 or 80 years to build their kingdom and they're frantic about it. They're on a hair trigger. They're ready to stamp out anyone who opposes or threatens that kingdom. I don't, I don't think I'm being too reductionistic here. It, it, the, the way that you react to the, the possibility that you might lose something in this earth communicates very loudly and clearly that you are completely invested in having that thing in the here and the now. But now imagine a person who is fully devoted to El Olam and to his eternal kingdom. This is, this is a person who, because of the work of Christ and because of the deposit of the Holy Spirit, it has a guaranteed inheritance that's kept in heaven for him right now. This is a person who therefore considers himself to be a sojourner, a pilgrim in the present time and in the present place. Now, I'm not suggesting that such a person won't care about the world 
or about what's happening in real time. You'll notice that Abraham certainly cared about this well. These aren't small, small things. I'm merely suggesting that the eternal perspective is going to free up that person to be a peacemaker. Who is El Olam? He's a God who gives peace. And if you've experienced his peace, then you're called to be a peacemaker too. Abraham's well stands as a monument to his peacemaking. It's called Beersheba, which means either well of oath or well of seven. It's a little unclear because the word for oath and seven are basically the same. Or perhaps there's intentional ambiguity there where it can mean both. Well of oath, because this is the oath that was made between two men, a covenant, or well of seven because of the prominence of seven and, and the cost of seven ewe lambs that, that testifies that this is Abraham's well. It could, be, it could be one or the other. It could be both. Who knows? The, either way, this is a standing monument of the fact that peace has been struck. It's a testimony of the fact that peop, God's people are a people of peace. And I want to just show you thirdly and finally in closing that our God must be praised. We see this from the text. Our God must be praised. We've uh, said that unbelievers ought to be able to recognize the presence of God in our lives. It ought to be obvious to them that the Lord is the fount of every blessing in our lives. But first, and more fundamentally, that needs to be obvious to us. Before it's obvious to others, it needs to be obvious to us. Before we can expect outsiders to be attracted to our eternal God, we ourselves must be smitten by him and enamored of him. If Abimelech understands the source of Abraham's blessing, how much more must Abraham acknowledge that everything he has and everything that he is comes down to God's presence and God's blessing. So it's not enough for Abraham to just have a memorial in Beersheba to commemorate the covenant relationship that he's made with his fellow man. Abraham is determined in this place also to make a memorial to his eternal God. And so we read in verse 33 that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, El Olam, the everlasting God. You get the impression that Abraham was a tree guy, right? The, he, the original, the OG tree hugger. This is, this is Abraham. He, he loved to live near the Oaks of Mamre, for example, he met uh, the Lord for lunch underneath trees. And now we find him planting a tree. And this is a hardy, um, long-living, evergreen tree. And when you think about that, this is the, that, that actually is the perfect plant, perfect tree to serve as a landmark for the worship of an eternal God. If you plant a tree, you, you must have an eye for the future. If you expect to be in this thing for the, the long haul, then you're going to plant a tree. 
What's more, when you plant a tree, you're actually expecting that tree to outlive you. So it's a perfect, it's a perfect symbol, it seems to me, of man's momentary nature in contrast to God's eternal nature. And it was here, by this tree, in this grove, in Beersheba, that Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And calling upon the name of the Lord includes at least these two things, praise and prayer. To praise the eternal God is to recognize his worth. It's to render him the glory that is due him for all that he is and all that he has done. And then to pray. You know what to pray is. It's to, it's to plead with him for continued provision. Prayer is essentially this acted out acknowledgement of these twin truths that we've been expounding. First, that, that we are dependent creatures who have temporal needs and we can't meet them ourselves. And second, is that God is eternal and powerful and he's loving enough to supply all of our needs. When you pray, when you ask, when you plead with God, that, that's, what you're, that's what you're acknowledging. Both of those things. And neither should we think that this worship service slash prayer meeting was just a one-time deal or even a once-a-week prospect. You get the impression that Abraham returned to this spot regularly to reset and to recalibrate his mind and his heart around the eternality of God. No doubt this was an indispensable part of Abraham's sojourning. You can't make it through this world without regularly turning to the eternal God to acknowledge him in praise and to petition him in prayer. Our God must be praised. So I would ask in closing, is the worship of El Olam an indispensable part of your pilgrimage? I, I suspect that you enjoy the Lord's presence and his provision and the peace that he gives, but do you delight in his person such that you prioritize in your life praise and prayer? This is precisely what gives significance to Abraham's sojourning. He knew El Olam, the eternal God, and he experienced his presence Abraham enjoyed his peace. Abraham, in turn, displayed his peace by making peace with others, and he gave himself to prayer and to praise. Now, by God's grace and for his glory, may these things be true about us. May they mark our own sojourning and pilgrimage into glory. Amen? Amen.